Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening and welcome to the December uh, 2021 episode of We Got Planning News For You. Technically, I think that makes it our Christmas episode, although it seems far too early to start donning the tinsel. Um, welcome, everybody. Um, as always, uh, can I encourage you to make a charity donation in place of a uh, registration fee? You know by now the charities we support include the NHS Combined Charities, Just Giving Page, Shelter and Brian May's Save Me Trust. But of course, feel free to donate to a charity of your choice if you prefer. And we're delighted um, this evening to welcome Kate Henderson. Kate, hello. Um, hello. Hi. Lovely to see you all. Very, very pleased you're able to join us. Kate, of course, is the uh, Chief Executive of, of the uh, National Housing Federation. And uh, we're going to, once Chris arrives from, from finishing his closing submissions, Chris is going to do his uh, interview with Kate in the in the second half of the show. In the meantime, Kate, uh, the usual questions. Can you tell us where you're calling us from, uh, what you've chosen as our theme this evening, and, and what are you drinking? Yeah, sure. So I am in North London. I'm at home at the moment. I've been out and about, but I've just got back. Um, my theme this evening is Cornwall, and it's great to see a Cornish flag behind yeah. Mary. Um, I got home and I thought I had some Cornish gin, but I must have accidentally finished it. Um, so instead, I have found uh, a Cornish pale ale, very luckily, in the cupboard. So I'm having a pale ale this evening. So the first time the the Cornwall flag featured, I think, it was behind Paul on um, a few few months ago, and I didn't know what the Cornwall flag was. Well, I thought Paul was flying the ISIS flag. And I thought that was a slightly <laughs> strange candidate for, to be a sleeper right. cell, but there we are. <laughs> uh, on that note, uh, Mary, I've uh, got to go with you first. If you're the, the Cornwall fan extraordinaire, you'll be delighted with Kate's choice of theme. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and uh, as she very um, smartly observed, uh, I have brought my flag in from home uh, to the office. Here I am sitting in the town legal office, and it's lovely to see you, Kate. Welcome to the show. And I have a special picture to show you of something I purchased Excellent. in Cornwall last weekend. Uh, so if I could just call up oh, Rob. Now, okay. this is... This is my new gin bottle that I'm going to be drinking over Christmas. And it comes from a farm, the Colwith Farm Distillery. And to be fair to them, they make both vodka and gin. And in fact, Avaldor means potato in Cornish. So that's my tipple that I'm going to be looking forward to that I thought I'd share with you. Thank, Thank you, Rob. You if it lasts till Christmas, it looks lovely, Mary. Thank you. <laughs> Sasha, how are you? I'm very well. I've, I, apart from the 4.30 wake up this morning to get to Shropshire and back, but I think I'm now in the right county. I'm in London and um, <laughs> I'm delighted Kate chose the Cornish theme. My mother was born in St Agnes, so I love Cornwall and I spent my childhood there. Um, and I've got a photo for you, me and Chris, on a Cornish lane during when we were at Land's End. There, there is Chris, oh, yeah. he's trying to, trying to remain incognito, but Chris and I... <laughs> 
in a in a Cornish lane. Um, yeah. Cheers. Well, Paul, good to see you. I love your tie. I didn't know it'd have to bring sunglasses to. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Diffjar, uh, Charlie, and uh, Fatla Guinness, as they say in Cornwall, apparently. <laughs> um, good evening. How are you? Uh, nice to see you, Kate. Um, I've got a bit of a fail, I'm afraid. I've got some Cornish ah. beer, and I've got some more Cornish beer. <laughs> I ran down for a, a bottle opener to the uh, the room service. I was sent this. <laughs> I was about to say, you're going to give Why? the best. It doesn't work. <laughs> you're going to challenge give... by the end of the show. It's to open two bottles of beer with a shoehorn. <laughs> oh, don't. Ow. <laughs> <laughs> he's actually no, going to give the best, the, the best closing speech he's ever given in the morning after those beers. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, being equally as original as you, Paul, guess what I got? I got the one other Cornish beer yeah. that you didn't. I have actually managed to open it, however, not using a shoehorn. Uh, good old Doomba. Um, Charlie Badder here, uh, Keating Chambers. Um, and let's go straight into um, the case reports. And we've got, um, I think, probably for the first time, all of our cases mm. uh, this week are uh, Secretary of State decisions. There's mm. been a, a, a glut of decisions, mostly negative for the appellants. Uh, and Mary is going to kick off with um, uh, the first of two London ones, the, the Tulip decision. Over to you, Mary. Thank you very much. Indeed, indeed, I am. And I'm going to uh, just call upon young Rob for his assistance here. But my decision uh, is, as you say, all about the Tulip. Now, this was a decision made by Christopher Pincher, uh, of course, former guest on the show, Minister of State for Housing. And it relates to a 305 metre tower uh, known as the tulip for obvious reasons. And perhaps, Rob, you could show us, um, yes, thank you very much, uh, one of the images. So this was a proposal designed by Fosters and Partners in the city by the uh, cluster, uh, as it's known as, and it was initially supported and approved by the City of London Corporation, but it was blocked by the mayor in 2019, in the summer of 2019. And it was appealed... Um, Interestingly enough, three days before the six-month um, deadline, which I always think tells you something, um, the inspector was the impeccable David Nicholson, uh, architect inspector. I'm going to share a secret. Only inspector I've kissed. I'm not going to describe the circumstances. But he conducted a <laughs> virtual inquiry lasting over six weeks, which finished in, in December. He produced a 166-page report and in my experience, this is a unique report. And perhaps, perhaps um, Rob, you could now just put up page 15 of the inspector's examination report, because it begins with uh, a picture and another example, page 20, if you'd be so kind, Rob. So this inspector's report is, is littered with plans and images, which... Uh, to my mind, is unique. I haven't seen one of uh, uh, such a such a thing as this before. But um, perhaps he's he's paving the way. I'm sure he is. Anyway, the issues here were all about the extent of harm to the significance of the Tower of London, a world heritage site, and there were various other conservation areas and listed buildings that uh, were said to be affected, and. The appeal was a, a, a many-handed affair. So we had Russell Harris calling Professor Tavener and Chris Mille, 
uh, on behalf of the appellant. We had Neil Cameron supporting on behalf of the city, calling um, officers from the city. The opposition uh, was led by uh, Harrowwood Philpot, acting for the mayor, who called Nigel Parker Bell Parker Mills and Elizabeth Adams, and also Historic England were represented by the lovely Scott Linus, who called David English from Historic England. So there was an array of parties, all with uh, slightly different cases on the spectrum of harm and the extent of the benefits. Uh, welcome, welcome, Mr. Young, um, to the to the show. I detect him coming in, but just to cut to the chase. In the, over, in the end, the inspector's recommendation was that the proposals be refused. He described the tulip as a, as a proposal which exuded extremes. Although it had honeyed detailing and exquisite presentation, uh, the purpose form materials and location had resulted in a design which he said would cause considerable harm to the significance of the Tower of London and further harm to other designated heritage assets. He was rather scathing about the sustainability of the overall proposal whilst recognising the considerable efforts that had been made and was of the view that the reinforced concrete lift shaft with a very high embodied energy uh, represented an unsustainable life cycle and that uh, therefore the proposal was not of the highest architectural quality because partly the design and secondly the poor lifestyle lifetime sustainability and he took the view that the economic benefits in the context of the city and in the context of all the other attractions in London uh, because it was basically a tourist attraction at the top uh, was limited and that in the classic 196 exercise, the benefits fell, quotes, well short of outweighing the considerable harm uh, to the moderate harm for, of the outstanding universal value of the Tower of London. And, uh, and so um, for those reasons, he concluded the scheme wouldn't be consistent with the development plan and it ought to be refused. And the minister agreed with all of the inspector's recommendations and dismissed it. Thank you very much, Charlie. Thanks, Mary. And um, next up, Sasha's going to tell us about another Secretary of State decision relating to Brighton Marina uh, with not dissimilar outcome or, or reasoning in many ways. Yes, I think, I think that I'm going to deal with Brighton Marina, which, as most of you will know, lots of us have seen it as a pretty prominent site on the seafront of Brighton. And I think we're all in the industry trying to work out what is the, what's the approach of Gove to matters of design, et cetera, et cetera. And um, this was a decision that Brighton Marina, as most will know, started to be developed for housing. There was a scheme, I think, in 2006, which had planning permission, but the owners of the marina had came forward with a bigger and what they considered better scheme for a thousand apartments. And it was... Rupert Warren represented the appellants, Angelie Foster, the local authority. Uh, the other notable thing about the appearances was a retired inspector, beware the retired inspector who turns up meekly and quietly to make representation and, and naturally has quite a seminal role. And most of us remember Robert Meller. He appeared at this, this inquiry as a local resident um, I once actually, I remember had I've had the inspector who said he had the first ever hearing and he turned up at an inquiry in 2009 and was astonished when we had 150 
residents, nine professional witnesses. He said that he was amazed at how hearings have evolved. Anyway, getting back to Brighton Marina, the, the point is we all want to know what the Secretary of State thinks beauty constitutes. And of course, all our clients are asking it. And in this case, it's quite clear the inspector takes the view that beauty requires a very strong consideration of what compliance with the development plan constitutes and local design guide. Brighton, at the late stage, adopted a local design guide and the inspector took a very, very forensic approach to design and concluded overall that the proposal was harmful in terms of its design. And, and I think this is a really important decision because notwithstanding the operation of the tilt of balance, Brighton had about a 4.3 HLS um, compliance. So the tilt of balance was in play. And also, and I say this for all local authority officers who put in their proofs moderate weight to affordable housing and moderate weight to the supply of market housing, please from now on note, the Secretary of State in this decision gives very significant weight to both. And this will obviously, I'm sure Mary, Charlie, myself, Chris and Paul will all be referring to this decision as other members of the bar over the next six months. Very significant way. And I know Kate will be almost jumping around with joy. Very significant way. However, notwithstanding that, the inspector felt the harm to heritage assets, the harm to because of design and harm to the living conditions of the future occupiers, all factors which outweighed the benefits and thereby refusing it. So my takeaway is we are now in an era where the Secretary of State and his inspectors are all giving very considerable weight to design. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Sasha. Uh, and next up, Paul. Uh, we're going to go a bit further north now, aren't we? Um, and you're going to we're going to, go further, going to go a lot further north. But before I do, can I thank Michelle Smith, who's given me the tip, which worked, which allowed me to remove the cap from this. Apparently, it's the use the little metal bit in the door to the bathroom at the hotel and break ah. it like that. I have learned something today, and it worked. <laughs> Cheers, Michelle. I <laughs> still think you should have tried the shoehorn. <laughs> yeah, well, my teeth didn't break. Um, <laughs> long story. Right, uh, so imagine yourself in a different universe, a, a universe without COVID. Uh, and had there been such a universe, then there would have been a mega inquiry. It would have been a mega inquiry, which would have taken place last year, and it would, would have involved most of King's Chambers. Um, it would have involved a series of logistics schemes, and it would have also involved Angeli and Sasha from Landmark turning up uh, for uh, uh, representing the Parkside group, uh, promoting one of the schemes, but everybody else was King's. Uh, it would have been a fantastic Beano in terms of uh, a company. Uh, however, everything went online. So there were four large-scale logistics schemes that were considered on virtual inquiries by two inspectors, Messrs Young and Sims, uh, from late 2020, sequentially, going into spring of 2021, and then followed by another one, which was considered by Mr Inspector Mike Warden, who bizarrely, by one of the life's coincidence I'm in front of today, um, uh, all of them are Secretary of State's decisions, all of them are call-ins, with the exception of the one I was involved in, which was a refusal and an appeal at Haydock Park. Um, so uh, two of those decisions came out earlier on in the year. They, they involved sites at Symmetry Park and Wingates in Bolton. And they those involved uh, schemes in the Greenbelt for large-scale logistics and were granted by the Secretary of State. In relation to the others that have come out uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, they've all been also all Secretary of State's decision, with the exception of Haydock Park, which was 
uh, a Section 78 Secretary of State decision, um, uh, they've been granted, uh, save for the one I was involved in, which is Haydock Park, unfortunately. Um, so the Parkside Colliery one, the one that Sasha was involved in, was granted together with the Parkside Link Road, uh, notwithstanding opposition from a, a, a fairly articulate and vocal opposition group, um, uh, as was Omega South, which is a site in St Helens close to uh, uh, Warrington, uh, intended to assist Warrington in terms of their employment land. But these are all big boxes, big, big boxes in the green belts, most of them identified as emerging allocations. Haydock Park was identified as safeguarded land in the emerging plan. Um, in all of the decisions, they were all treated as separate and individual decisions and assessed. There was no real assessment of cumulative effect. There was no comparison undertaken in relation to any of them. However, the Secretary of State identified that notwithstanding significant adverse impacts upon the Greenbelt, that the economic benefits, both local in terms of the district and regional, outweighed substantial harm in relation to uh, Greenbelt, uh, in terms of openness, uh, in some instances in relation to heritage, uh, and granted consent for all, save Haydock Park. And now this is not sour grapes. This is genuinely putting forward a, a bit of a difficulty with it, which is where you've got a whole series of schemes which are very similar on very similar issues with very similar policy issues. Um, Chris and I were involved in, in two cases in Sandbach about 10 years ago where the Secretary of State um, rejected both my scheme for Gladman's and Chris's scheme for Richborough. Uh, he ultimately consented for judgment to judgment on the Richborough scheme, and uh, we succeeded in quashing our decision uh, for Gladman in the, ultimately in the Court of Appeal. But the, the Court of Appeal said, where you've got diametrically opposed views about schemes, where they raise very similar issues and they're granted very, very close uh, together, you need to explain what's going on. And that's a bit of a lacuna in relation to the one that was dismissed. So dangle the sour grapes in relation to that. And whilst you're dangling the sour grapes in relation to that, uh, you should also note that Sasha's case, which is great, it involved the most fantastic piece of heritage evidence because the greatest king that ever ruled in these islands was, of course, King Oswald, King of Northumbria, uh, who was defeated tragically by King Pender of Mercia uh, in 642 uh, at the Battle of Mesafield, which was said to have taken place near Warrington. Uh, now, uh, amazingly, the forensic skills of counsel for the applicant in the Parkside case managed to say because there were no letters and because there was no plans, therefore there was no evidence that the battle took place anywhere near Warrington. And that's what's set out in the Secretary of State's decision. It took place in 642. There's three letters that have survived from the 7th century. A brilliant piece of advocacy, Sasha. Brilliant. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Paul. I remembered that one. <laughs> but nice one, Sasha. Well, I'm going to do, finish off the case supports um, dealing with the West Ferry uh, case. This was another decision of uh, Chris Pincher, uh, former guest of the show, as Mary said, the Minister for Rough Sleeping and Housing, on behalf of the Secretary of State to dismiss West Ferry Developments Limited's appeal for a 1,524-dwelling residential-led mixed-use development at the West Ferry Printwork sites. The development comprised... Uh, amongst the things of five towers, including one of 31 stories above ground floor, one of 45 stories. So pretty big on any view. Now, this case is, of course, infamous, given the previous successful legal challenge, the decision of the previous Secretary of State, Robert Jenrick, to allow the appeal in circumstances which, um, let's you say, in neutral language, gave rise to an appearance of bias. Uh, now, following um, 
the High Court consent order crossing the original decision, the case went back for reconsideration. Uh, The inspector's report uh, of David Prentice recommending refusal still stood because it was only the Secretary of State's decision that was quashed. Um, But a further inquiry was held uh, despite that and a further report written to consider potential material changes and circumstances since the first report, most notably uh, new development plans at London level, borough level and indeed neighbourhood plan level. Uh, and Inspector Prentice's second report again recommended refusal, and this time uh, Minister Pinch, on behalf of the Secretary of State, agreed. Now, the main thrust of the decision uh, was that the proposal would, principally due to the harmful due uh, to the height, um, have a harmful impact on character and appearance of, of the area, and importantly, on a range of designated heritage assets. Uh, the Inspector and the Secretary of State thought that rather than a design-led approach seeking to ensure the most appropriate form of development for the site, uh, the proposal sought to maximise capacity without properly responding to the character of the place. That was the, the main thing we did for the scheme. There were other considerations too. Those are the main ones. Now, the local authority couldn't demonstrate a five-year supply. 4.85 years was the figure identified by the inspector and accepted by the Secretary of State. Um, but because the heritage harm wasn't outweighed by public benefits, there was a clear reason for refusal under the terms of paragraph 11D1 of the framework, and therefore the tilted balance at 11D2 was inapplicable. One didn't get the tilted balance. Now, I'm just going to dwell on three aspects of the decision that are of broader significance. That I could spend hours talking about the decision, but the three that seem to me to be of potential um, general application to our viewers are, are the following. Um, the five-year housing and supply shortfall was described by the inspector and uh, agreed by the minister to be small, uh, 4.85 years, and not a significant factor in the overall balance, his words, only limited weight given to this consideration. Now, on the face of it, one might think, well, that's a bit troubling, not least in the context of the Brighton decision, which suggested otherwise. Um, but it must be remembered that this was in the context of the Tower Hamlets requirement being what was described as a very large requirement. Numerically, it was over 20,000 dwellings required in a five-year period. And because of that scale, necessarily relied on tall buildings uh, and then necessarily would sort of ebb and flow as those buildings came on stream otherwise. So it seems to me that though on the face of it, only limited weight to a 4.5 year supply um, might be something that would be thrown thrown at schemes in other parts of the country. I don't think that reasoning is applicable to five year supply shortfalls in non-urban authorities. And I think the very significant weight of the kind um, that Sasha talked about in the Brighton case is more likely to be applicable. Second point, um, the the new MPPF policies on design equality um, were relied upon the decision, as they were in the Tulip and the Brighton uh, cases. Uh, Whilst they gave undoubtedly added impetus to the design objections, I don't think they really made a difference to the outcome. In fact, I'd venture to say ditto in relation to Brighton and Tulip as well. It seems to me that in all three cases, um, there were shortcomings identified with the design, which led to conflict with the development plan and the, the framework design policies simply gave a bit of afterburner to um, what otherwise would still have been the same conclusion. Um, so for now, I don't think these are illustrations of schemes where the diff, the, uh, there would be different outcomes reached because of the new framework design policies. Finally, very little weight, the inspector's words adopted by the minister, was given to the SIL payment of around £43 million. The reasoning being that SIL is a legal requirement, um, not at a function of the scale of the appeal scheme. 
I'm not sure I completely uh, follow that myself because a requirement could still be a benefit. It's £43 million to the bank to deliver public benefits, which would not be in the bank absent the scheme, but who am I to gainsay? Uh, experience inspector and secretary of state. So that is the position still uh, receipts very limited weight. So there's the three aspects of the case that I think are of particular importance. With that, I'm going to pass over to, to Chris and um, we're going to start our interview with Kate, which I'm very much looking forward to. So over to you, can I just say, uh, please do anybody uh, put any questions you might have for Kate in the Q&A box and we'll try and answer each one of those at the end. Thank you very much, Charlie. I hope everybody can hear me okay. I'm in Malmesbury Town Hall. We've just finished. It, I was slightly late, forgive me for that. Just finishing closing submissions in a two-week case here in the lovely Cotswolds. And uh, I just have to say, Paul, I'm drinking this, okay? And I couldn't get the top off. And so my planning consultant, Jeff Richards, didn't use the door like Michelle. He used a knife from the kitchen in the canteen of the town hall and wedged it off that way. So we're learning a lot today, aren't we, about how to open beer. <laughs> really, really hard then. Uh, yeah, you've been ripping it off. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, my inquiry with Shauna Davis and, and Mike Curtin and lots of people who watch the show and uh, they'll have to listen to the podcast when they get home. But um, And I agree with you, Paul, about Foxland and what was said in Foxland about deciding all these cases together. Only you could be so polite about a situation where the other schemes are successful. We all know what a fabulous advocate you are, So, but well done for telling that story. Okay, now the interview and to turn to Kate, you've been incredibly patient. Thank you very much indeed. We are absolutely delighted uh, to have you on the show and talking to us about the fabulous work that housing associations do. You are the chief executive of the National Housing Federation, a group that everybody knows about. And what I wanted to do is just start with a little bit about you before we turn to the Federation and just to ask about your fantastic career and and how your career has progressed to this amazing position you've now reached as the chief executive. Well, thanks, Chris, and um, it's great to be here. Um, First off, I should have explained why Cornwall was my theme and I failed to do so. So starting at the very beginning, so I was born in Penzance, um, which is the very end of the train line, for those of you who don't know that bit of the country. Um, and I actually went to school uh, in the last school, so Cape Cornwall Comprehensive, the last school before you hit Land's End, so absolute end <laughs> of the universe. Um, beautiful place to grow up, but when you get to your teenage years, you're desperate for, for a bit of urban life, so um, moved to London for university. However, when I was growing up in Cornwall, I certainly i had never heard of planning or any of these conversations. I did do, though, very geekily, a million years ago, my GCSE geography project on the impact of an out-of-town shopping centre just outside Penzance on the future of the high street, uh, which actually, uh, in my later years at TCPA, um, you know, it all came back to me around planning. But <laughs> a bit about my kind of uh, journey to where I am now. So I moved to London, I studied geology, which I absolutely loved, and I still love the outdoors and rocks, but I decided um, that I wanted to do something that was a bit more applied to policy and politics. So then um, having done geology at UCL, went to Imperial and did a master's in environmental technology and um, specialised in energy policy. And that led me kind of first job into doing some consultancy on wind farm planning applications, which are hugely controversial. Uh, This is all pre-2010. So 2010, obviously, is a moratorium on onshore wind. So prior to that, a lot of the tannate stuff in Wales for anyone who's involved in that, um, mm-hmm. but also some in the Midlands and also some work around biofuels. So quite a lot of work around um, getting renewable projects 
off the ground, engaging communities, but also engaging with national government. And that took me into the Town and Country Planning Association, where I first joined as an energy policy and communications role, and then a strategy role. And then in 2010, the then chief executive, um, Gideon Awas, went over to the planning inspectorate, and I um, became the interim chief executive, which I did for six months before applying for the permanent role. So I was at the TCPA for about 11 years, but running it for about eight, which was uh, an amazing time, a big period of change, because uh, I started there in, in, in 27. So we had the last of the labour years, all of the Ecotown stuff, um, all of the housing market renewal, growth points, all of that stuff. And then 2020, big shift uh, in direction. So it was at the TCPA through um, you know, lots of things going uh, and lots of things coming in terms of um, the MPPF and the like. And then I joined the National Housing Federation three years ago, which is the Trade Association for, for Housing Associations. So that's me in a nutshell. Yes, but I, I happen to know, you're being very modest about it, that your interview for your current job was a seven-stage process. Is that right? It was a seven-stage uh, process that involved... Wow. Um, it, it involved some of the competency testing stuff that you might have been through, which, um, you know, as someone who's got two science degrees, I multiple choice questions on algebra, all of a sudden I was like, I can't remember how to do this and you're timed. Um, so there was some of that stuff. There were interviews with psychologists. There were um, media interviews as well. You know, can you stand up to scrutiny? You know, how would you perform if you're on the Today programme or, or Newsnight? Which they, they really wanted to know what they were getting. Um, and, you know, in order to, to ensure that they had someone fronting up the sector who was able to articulate complicated stuff and, and handle a lot of pressure. Yeah, well, I mean, that, I can see why they would do that, though, because what does your job involve? We see you on LinkedIn. I do quite a bit. Uh, you can outcompete me there, I think. And, <laughs> um, what does your job involve as chief executive? How, how is your time divided? Yeah, sure. So a lot of my job and the primary purpose of the National Housing Federation is around shaping the policy environment. So being able to create the right conditions for our members to be able to deliver their social purpose, which is being good landlords, providing homes for people on lower incomes whose, whose housing needs are not met by the market. Um, so a lot of my job is, is kind of advocacy work, it's engagement with government. So that might be um, on government commissions. So I'm on the rough sleeping advisory panel. I'm on a, um, an expert challenge panel for the social housing white paper. I also do things like I'm on um, a group that's set up by the Domestic Abuse Commissioner, um, looking at interventions on, on perpetrators. Again, I'm not an expert on domestic abuse, but the housing association sector has a hugely important role of, of being part of the solution. So um, part of my role is that kind of stuff. Part of it's lots of meeting MPs, but it's also being out and about understanding what housing associations do, the challenges they're facing, meeting residents, meeting frontline staff, but also meeting exec teams and boards, which is why you see me um, out and about across the country a lot, um, seeing what our members do. And I think for, for those of you who don't know the sector, the National Housing Federation represents 800 members. Um, we are very, very involved in housing supply. So one in four of new homes would be developed by a housing association, might be through a section 106. We might not actually be building it ourselves, but it will be taken on by a housing association. Um, but we also do just a huge range of stuff. And some of our members are very big um, and some are very small and specialist. And we're, we're in pretty much every part of the country. So we do things like 
um, accommodation for care leavers, um, accommodation, supported housing for adults with learning disabilities, homeless hostels, refuges for women and families fleeing domestic abuse. We do lots of extra care um, accommodation for older people. Uh, and then we do things like shared ownership. So helping people onto the housing ladder. Uh, we might be master developers. We might just do a tiny bit of a section 106. And we might, you know, one member might be doing an infill site of three homes and that's a big deal for them. Another member might be delivering you know, a whole new kind of urban extension, new community. So a real range, range of activities. There isn't really a typical week, um, it does take me to all over the country. And I think um, one of the things that's great about the job is that every day is quite different. So you could be in a homeless hostel in the morning and doing a select committee in the afternoon. It's very interested in you talking to ministers and obviously you've got a good dialogue with them there. Do they listen? I mean, do you find government officials and ministers listen or do they just kind of, you know, they just listen or give the impression they're listening and then it all goes in one ear and out the other? So I think the relationship um, with ministers all it, you know, and, and with officials, it takes time to earn trust. Um, it, it's actually all about, you know, relating to people on a human level, understanding where you've got shared agendas, understanding where you've got shared challenges. Um, and I think, you know, trust takes time to build, but it, it's absolutely that is part of, of the job. Um, in terms of whether ministers are listening, I think during the course of the pandemic, whilst it was remote, the engagement we had with the government and with ministers was, was quite remarkable. So that was everything from, you know, how do we coordinate PPE into care settings that, that housing associations are running and managing? Um, how do we ensure, you know, as much as possible construction can keep going in the height of lockdown? How do we get frontline workers uh, on the list of, you know, of workers whose kids can still be eligible to go into school? So it's, it's a real mix of things. Um, we're really pleased to get a very early meeting in with Michael Gove um, in his second week in the role, which was great. Um, and you know he's the secretary of state it very much seems like he is listening he has a huge job on his hand you know he's tasked with leveling up defining what it means and then delivering on it he's tasked with the building safety crisis and he's also tasked with the union so these are three very very significant kind of um parts of of his his role so we have we have kind of the formal one-to-one -one engagement but we also you know i mentioned some of those panels that I'm on, like the Rough Sleeping Advisory Panel, that's chaired by a minister. We recently did a roundtable on rural affordable housing, and you'd have a DEFRA minister and a Duloc minister, um, you know, jointly chairing that. So there's sort of the, there's the really formal, and then there's the, the less formal, and then there's the even more informal where you, you might be at an event from a panel, you might have a coffee with them, that kind of thing. Can I ask about um, your, um, your views as an organisation about the government's focus on urban land, um, lots more housing going into cities, the 20 biggest cities, and um, a lot of PRS, uh, private rented sector housing. I mean, what, what's your view? Because planning policy is definitely pushing housing down those routes. So we always get stuck in this very, you know, um, binary argument. It's an argument about, you know, whether Brownfield's good and Greenfield's bad. Um, and actually, it's much more nuanced than that. I mean, it would be wonderful if every local authority in the country had a plan that was based on actual housing needs and was based on identifying the most sustainable locations for growth. So I do think it is right that we are looking at the best use of existing land. I think a focus on Brownfield is absolutely right in the most sustainable locations. But the, the economics, the viability has got to stack up. So it's great that with the spending review, we had some money for brownfield uh, funding. Fantastic. 1.8 billion. But actually, 
you know, are we going to combine that with decarbonisation funding, with actually some regeneration funding, with having more flexibility with the affordable homes programme, with, I know there's so many different funding pots in, in Homes England, but are we going to use that to make sure that those sites can actually come forward in a viable way to deliver a sustainable community? So I think, you know, the intention is the right one. Let's use existing land, let's reinvigorate local economies, particularly ones who've perhaps lost their strong economic purpose and they need to reinvent them and, and actually having a good housing mix there would help. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't also look at, at greenfield land. And when we are looking at greenfield land, let's do it in a really sustainable way. So if we're doing brownfield land, let's enhance the biodiversity. Let's make sure that we're planning in new green spaces in that brownfield land. And if we are going to use greenfield land, which inevitably we do need to use some greenfield land to meet housing need, let's do it in those locations where there is high housing need, but we can do it in a way that's sustainable. So we get the sustainable transport in, we get in the good local schools, we have the good housing mix. You know, all of the stuff that we know we can do, uh, but we don't necessarily do if everything just goes on through on a piecemeal appeal, appeal, appeal way because we don't have a local authority plan in place that does these big yeah. rights. Your, your members must be observing, though, a drop in the amount of affordable housing being delivered through a focus on brownfield because most brownfield sites can't support affordable, can they? I mean, it, government money being thrown at this uh, is one thing, um, but actually genuine cross subsidization that is very much a greenfield a greenfield delivery mechanism isn't it so cross subsidy also only gets you so far in in meeting genuine housing need and delivering social rented homes and other forms of affordable housing so um cross subsidy has worked you know over many years but it is absolutely not the fundamental solution to delivering on housing need in this country the way to do that is partnership, it's through grants, it's through investments, it's through taking a longer term view of, you know, our housing benefit bill is huge. Actually, longer term, if you want to bring that down, you know, it, it means upfront capital funding in, in social housing. So I don't think we can rely on cross-subsidy. And I think with those brownfield sites, it does become much harder, but it would be, um, we would be really letting down those communities if we don't get some affordable housing in those places too, because they need it too. Can I ask you about right to buy and what effect that is having? Um, because that is surely eroding. We hear a lot about eroding the amount of social rented that's available. Yeah, we, I mean, we have such huge housing needs in this country and in particular for social rented homes which are typically 50% of a market rent in places like London it could be the 30% of a market rent it might be higher 60 or 70 in some of our, our midlands and northern towns but it is always less than than a market rent now again when we talk about right to buy we get into this argument that sort of says you know people should have the ability to move from different tenures and that actually some people don't want to be in in social housing for life that's totally fine but losing social homes as a result of it and not building up additional net social housing shouldn't be the outcome so I think what we need to focus on isn't necessarily right to buy at this point in time it's much more and of course it's leading to a, a, a net loss of social housing what we need to focus on is is how we deliver many many more affordable homes and of those different tenures so it won't just be social rent but we need a lot more social rent but also things like shared ownership as well. Do you, uh, where, where do you see the whole climate change uh, agenda affecting housing associations? Because we've just had COP26, there must be direct impact on housing associations arising out of that. 
So I, I feel really excited about the climate agenda. Now, you can look at it in two ways. You can look at it in the doom way of like, this is, you know, this is the biggest challenge facing the planet, facing society, facing our economy. Or you can say we have a massive opportunity here to invest in places to make it better and more sustainable for future generations. And I think as housing associations, it's a responsibility, but it's also it's also something that's quite empowering. It's going to help us with recruitment of the next generation of people who come into this sector. There are lots of benefits for tackling the climate crisis as a social landlord. We are improving the quality of our stock. We're making our homes healthier. We should be making them cheaper to live in. Uh, there's some challenges at the moment in terms of energy prices, but ultimately get the insulation right. Your energy bill should come down, you know, whatever your, your, your energy source is coming into the property. There's job creation, there's supply chains. And as social landlords, because we're not just thinking about the individual home, we can think about, you know, a flat, a block, a street, a neighbourhood, a whole community. And it should open up real economy scale of rolling out solutions. I also think with the climate stuff, it's quite different in terms of owner occupiers or private renters because the incentives are totally different. Like it's really, you know, if you own your own home, do you really want to replace your boiler right now? Probably just hold on a bit more. It's a massive expense. You know, the messaging from government at the moment is quite scary. As a social landlord, if we can get the communication right with residents, of course it will be disruptive, but with residents and say, let's work together on, on what's going to make your home cheaper to live in and we're going to do it with you, but government, you're going to need to fund some of this, then, then I think it's a big opportunity. The government, um, we got a win in the spending review, so they've just announced another £800 million for the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund over the next three years. It's a start. This is, you know, this is a 30 year program. It's going to cost billions, but this is a really important kind of start of, okay, given that we're housing associations, we've got pretty much every type of housing. Let's work out what works with different housing typologies in different places. Let's work out which doesn't work as well and not roll that out everywhere and learn from our mistakes pretty quickly. Uh, From a planning perspective, I think we're going to have to do quite a lot of work with our local authority partners and probably with government as well on how do we speed this up? What are the changes that are going to be needed? How, what are the best solutions in conservation areas? Those kind of things as well. So we're all working together um, on this rather than spending a long time arguing about that stuff. Okay, well, I'm going to throw it over to Mary now. And so, uh, Mary, your question. Thank you very much, Chris. Kate, um, currently, how much affordable housing is delivered uh, via Section 106s rather than grant-funded schemes, which, <coughs> which you mentioned? And how concerned are your members about the potential loss of affordable housing through 106 and it being left to a new infrastructure levy, um, as has been suggested by government? So that's uh, a great question and one that we're talking a lot about in the sector. Um, So housing associations responsible for around one in four new homes that are built in this country, around Half of those, so say we deliver 200,000, the numbers go up and down. Around, around, so we deliver around 50,000, and again, it's up or down a bit from that. Half of those are delivered by grant funding, and half of those are delivered through Section 106. I think for the last year, it was, it was about 47, 48%. So it's really, really significant. Um, and In rural areas, it might be as high as 65, 70% of homes are delivered through um, Section 106s. So one of the things actually when the the, um, planning white paper was announced is they they also had the shorter term measures and one was a proposal to change the threshold um, of Section 106s from 10 homes to 40 or 50 homes. We engaged very constructively with government on that and we were really pleased that they listened because of the impact, particularly on rural communities, 
um, and did not bring that proposal forward at that time. Um, and we're really hoping that they listen um, around kind of the impact of Section 26. So it's I completely get the idea of having an infrastructure levy to give some certainty um, and some clarity and some you know uniformity of of using the planning system and how it's going to work. But the challenge with how it's it's and and again we we need a bit more detail on this to really comment on it. But the way that the infrastructure levy is uh, has been articulated is it's a levy paid from the developer to the local authority. Now. We don't know if that money to the local authority is ring-fenced. Um, we also don't know with that model how you deliver a mixed community. And whilst we are absolutely 100% pro delivering lots and lots of social housing, we do want mixed communities as well. We want communities that have all housing types and tenures in them because they are the most successful places and I don't see you know if it was a community some that just goes to the local authority you wouldn't want the affordable housing all being you know on the edge of town where there was a former petrol station or that kind of thing you want to integrate it into the new place so that I mean it doesn't it's not impossible for that to be worked through but those are some big issues for us there's also kind of a fundamental in, in that model is where's the housing association because if it's the you know maybe the housing association is the actual developer the master developer in which case I would say we will we want to be exempt from the levy uh, because we would be delivering affordable housing so there's some big challenges with what's being proposed and I think our view is it's better to you know section 106 is not perfect I'm sure everybody tuning in will say section 106 isn't perfect but it does work it does mm. deliver a lot of affordable housing let's improve it make it better um let's support local authorities you know in terms of getting the best possible deal they can out of section 186 um and improve it rather than scrap it altogether Agreed. Agreed, Kate. Good luck with that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Uh, Paul, you got a question? I, I do, Kate, and I'm going to um, use what happens with Boris on the COVID um, uh, stand. And the journalists always ask two questions, so I'm going to cheat and ask two questions. <laughs> um, the, the first, first of which is Michael Gove is says he's in listening mode. So if you could, if you could choose one reform that he could bring forward, which you improve your sector, what would it be? And then second, to Chris Whitty, um, Ian Orcock has asked a question uh, uh, about co-living and about whether co-living involving, involving young people is a sort of innovative scheme which would help in relation to uh, reducing the housing problem and what your thoughts are about that. So two questions. Sorry about that. No, brilliant. So, I mean, in, in terms of, um, you know, on, on the pause and planning reform and, and what we'd ask if Michael gave, on the planning front, it's pretty simple. We we want local authorities to be well resourced. We want them to attract good talent, have capacity and have an equal voice at the table so that they can do their local plans and then you know, be more visionary, but also be able to negotiate and get a good deal for their communities so that we get better outcomes. And if we had strong local plans because we had that capacity in our local authorities, I think we would deliver more affordable affordable housing. Um, the question about co-living, I think, is a really interesting one. I, I think um, there's, there's some really, really lovely examples in Scandinavia of, of happy, healthy places, and it works for the very young children and it, and, it, and it works for the older people as well in terms of actually having the, the joy of, of, of life and of, of, um, of being around people that you wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to interact with, particularly if you're older. And there's been lots of isolation and loneliness, particularly during the pandemic. I also think there's a, there's a lot to be said around the right type of housing in the right area. So there's quite a lot of, and there has been, you know, often on these debates around downsizing and how 
there are you know lots of people who are in houses that are too big for them but why would you move if you didn't have a great local alternative you know it's your family home you've been it's, it's your place it's your community if you want people to move there needs to be a beautiful nice smaller local alternative that is affordable for you that might release some equity for you but also is in still in the same place you might you know still probably want to have an extra bedroom so your kids can come and stay or grandkids and I think if we were able to to talk about housing need and to have those assessments of actually what people actually want and that probably does mean in some areas where they don't want growth and it's the people who are objecting to growth in these big houses that perhaps don't need all of that space actually having them about like what do you want and then freeing up some of that family housing and that that's housing of all, all tenures i think thank you that's great thank you right charlie uh, do you have a question Thanks, Chris. And uh, hi, Kate. It's really, hi. really fascinating discussion. I, I said I'd ask an audience question. There have been so many. Um, apologies to those whose brilliant questions I can't uh, pose to you. But um, the one I'm going to is from Mark. And he says, well, apart from saying, keep up the great work, with which uh, all of us would endorse, he says, do you think the housing associations, because of their long-term interest in housing uh, stock, and interest in their tenants' lives, including fuel poverty. Do you think that they're in a particularly good place to uh, advance low and zero carbon housing? So I'd love to say that they are, everybody is ready um, and um, at the forefront of doing it. But I think housing associations are at different stages of, of, of this journey to net zero. I think we will all get there. Um, and I think there's a lot of learning and a lot of collaboration that needs to happen. But I think we are really, really well placed to, um, to progress that. I should also say that there are plenty of other challenges on our plates at the moment uh, as well. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we really want to be ambitious about net zero, but we are also dealing, you know, when it comes to um, inflation, workforce issues at the moment are in uh, doing interesting things, you know, maybe in terms of supply parts, materials, that will be short term. Um, but in terms of workforce gaps, particularly on construction and repairs, some of the trades at the moment, that might be longer term and cost baked in. So we're just working through that. And of course, you know, our top priority at the moment is building safety. Um, the, the last four years, we have been working incredibly hard of assessing all buildings, or particularly high buildings, first off above 80 metres and first off with um, ACM, but now working through other materials and other heights. And so I think for those housing associations that are particularly impacted from that, that you know, it's completely non-negotiable. Building safety comes first. They might be slower on the journey to net zero. However, the ideal would be to be thinking about them at the same time, because if you're taking off the, you know, the material that's on the outside of the building, if you're going in and doing intrusive work, it'd be great to also improve the sustainability at the same time. But the, the ability to do that within the, the funding constraints and the programmes available makes that a bit challenging. Uh, but that would be the ideal. So, But the answer to the question is loads of potential on the journey to net zero in the sector, but we're at different stages with different members because of those different challenges. Thank you. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, Sasha, your question. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, um, Kate, yesterday when we were talking, having our preview, you mentioned that your estimate of, of the national need for affordable housing is around 100,000 units a year. And your estimate was deliveries about 6,000. So there's a huge gap, obviously. It doesn't take even my rudimentary maths gets to the scale of the gap. Uh, I mean, what what do you do about members? I mean, I put a proposition to you that in a lot of authorities, the members, unlike in the past when they had the responsibility for provision of council housing, that most members don't take the provision of affordable housing seriously, frankly. 
I know it's a sweeping criticism, but I make it. Um, is that a criticism you agree with? And if you do, what can we do to get members buy-in to make more, to provide more affordable housing? So it it it, it it's not a new challenge, the challenge you highlight, but it is it is a real one that we haven't been taking the responsibility nas- nationally, at the national political level or at a local political level, and this isn't everywhere, but in many places, about our civic responsibility to provide safe, secure, affordable housing for everybody in society. And there are people in society, there are a lot of people in society who who um the market won't meet their needs. So yeah, that figure of, I think it's, you know, we need to build a lot more, whether it's 90,000 or 100,000 a year of social rent, that's a huge number compared. And that's each year, every year for a decade to meet housing need, Um, you know, and we're bumbling along at at five or 6,000. So I think in terms of um, elected members, I think uh, many of them do take this responsibility seriously but don't feel like they've got the tools they actually have more tools available to them than they potentially think so you know having having really good housing need assessments and getting that getting your viability arguments right through planning but there is also something about national leadership and I do think with the new Secretary of State we have a Secretary of State who is more supportive of of social housing than perhaps we've had in previous years over the past decade we have um an affordable homes program where the previous program was was very very much geared towards um, affordable home ownership through shared ownership this one is split half and half with social rent in there and supported housing in there and i think with with elected members it's a bit like i, I, I don't don't know if, if any of you have dealt with um planning inquiries where that you know there's an object lots of objections towards housing for older people because they think all of these old people are going to move to the area and put loads of pressure on local services and it's not, it's like, it's them. They're the old people. It's their community. It's not loads of people flocking in because the accommodation's available. It's meeting local housing needs. So I think one of the things we need to do is encourage different voices to be elected to councils to represent, um, you know, those different issues. And that's where I think there's a bit of hope actually nationally as well in that we have a very different political landscape to two years ago. So when the election happened in 2019 and all of those seats went from red to blue across the red wall, um, those constituencies have much higher proportions of, of social housing and of voters who voted Conservative for the first time who have a very different view towards social housing. So I'm hoping that also will help shift shift the balance as well. That's really interesting. We, we spend a lot of our time, all, all five of us, talking about the five-year land supply for market houses. What about a five-year land supply for affordable housing set on a, a figure where local authorities have to meet it? And if they don't, there are penalties or incentives, at least, for that. Well, what about that? Um, I, uh, I'd vote for that. Um, and I think I think um, the more you can incentivize it and encourage it being around, this is for your community, this is for young, your young people, this is for your teaching assistants, this is for your nurses, this is for the people who are building your houses, uh, running your buses, working in your shops. This is about ensuring our communities thrive. And I think we, we are, I mean, I've been in some really interesting conversations actually with in local kind of parish areas where those conversations are starting to switch around a bit. But having a, a five-year land supply um, on a, on affordable housing would be brilliant. Okay. The only thing I want to ask you, and I think I have to really say this, is what advice would you give to young women looking at somebody like you who've reached chief executive level of an enormous organisation? What advice would you give them? 
Oh, so, um, you know, I am certainly not an expert in leadership um, at all, but I think a couple of tips. I think one is um, about being brave and taking risks. So I think, you know, there is never a perfect time to move into that next step of your career. And quite often we hold ourselves back. So when I was approached about this job, I had an 18 month year old and a preschooler who was, who, yeah, he was, he'd just turned four. And I was like, could I possibly take on a role like this with children that young? Is this the right time? The answer is no, it wasn't the right time, but it was the right time. And somehow uh, by putting myself forward and going through the process, at each step of the process, I was like, I think I can do this job. I don't know if I can be a good parent at the same time, but I can do the job. And actually on that front, it's about giving yourself a break. So sometimes I'm a good parent. Sometimes I'm really good at my job. Sometimes I'm less good at my job, but I'm a better parent. And kind of cutting yourself a bit of slack with that. I guess also it's around being visible, like putting yourself forward for stuff. So the reason I, you know, the board at the TCPA even considered me is because I was always saying, can I, can I just observe a board meeting? Or, or I, I don't mind speaking at that event. I mean, you know, each one of those things was putting myself outside of my comfort zone. But actually, each time I did it, I was like, OK, that wasn't so bad. And it was actually quite fun and exciting. And I've learned learned from that. And then um, I guess stuff I've learned a bit more as I've got a bit older. So I have never mentioned my kids on something like this previously. I'd have pretended I didn't have young children. I'm actually amazed they haven't barged into the room whilst doing um, <laughs> session. They've come home from school. They're being so quiet downstairs. I've even heard them outside the door. But previously, I would have just... I would never have mentioned my children. And actually, it's completely cool that you're a parent and you have a job and you have a life. And it means you bring your, you know, different perspectives to work. And I think that that's a great thing. And we we've kind of normalised that a bit more through the pandemic. That's a good thing. And then just two more things. One is around resilience. Like these jobs are high stakes, really stressful. Sometimes you have no sleep. Um, sometimes you're dealing with stuff that really, really matters. Um, and you have you you you've got to be resilient in that. You're not going to get everything right. You're not going to get every job application that you apply for either, and you have to keep going with that. And that that's okay too. So resilience um, and perspective kind of help you have resilience. And then last but not least is kindness, um, which I think is massively underrated. But I remember the people who I have worked with who've been kind to me, whether that's been um, people who've been junior to me or whether it's been board members who've given me a shot. But I think as a woman in a visible leadership role, it's really important that I support and I'm kind to other people who want to go on this journey. And I think for, for all of you, you're, you know, very established in your careers, actually, you know, role modeling behaviors and, and being kind to the people that you work with um, and that you come into contact with goes a huge way in boosting people on that, on that journey. I absolutely and I would encourage lots of women go for it. I absolutely love that last answer. And you are just very obviously naturally kind. Thank you very much indeed. We've got lots of other questions. We're going to send them on to you because uh, people would like to, to get answers. And then I hand back to you, Charlie. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. And can I extend my thanks, Kate? I mean, what a fascinating, wide-ranging, inspirational discussion. So you've been fantastic mm. guests. We're hugely welcome. Um, well, that's it for this week. We'll be back on the first Thursday in January. Uh, goodness knows where we'll all be uh, then, probably in lockdown. <laughs> no, no, no. Be optimistic. Be optimistic. My booster tomorrow. Um, so have a great Christmas and a happy new year. You're the first people, dear viewers, I've wished that um, this year. Um, have a blast and we'll see you in January um, for another year's worth of We Got Planning News for you. Thank you for sticking with us and uh, cheers. Good night. Thanks yeah, again. Thank you. Good night. Cheers. Bye -bye. Well done, Kate.
Excellent. Bye. Thank you. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.